Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Siemens Mobility podcast, Moving Beyond. I'm your host, Professor Sally Eves, and in today's episode, we're going to be discussing how we can make transport more sustainable. And to do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Peter, Chief Executive Officer of Siemens Mobility. Welcome to you, Michael. Welcome to you. Thank you very much. Lovely to speak with you again. And I'm also joined by Dr. Thomas Becker, Vice President, Sustainability and Mobility at the BMW Group in Munich. A very warm welcome to you, Thomas. Yeah, thank you so much and uh, great to be with you. Thank you. Really excited for this conversation. So many hot topping talking points here. So much to discuss. I think maybe four central themes that we'll drill into. One, obviously, the impact of COVID-19, particularly on urban mobility, looking at different sustainable solutions for rail and individual transport, the role of hydrogen vis-a-vis battery, embedding sustainability by design and mobility as a service. So before we dive into these areas, I always think it's nice to know a little more about the people behind the technology as well. So I'd love to do that first. So maybe Thomas, coming to you, uh, before we go into your role at BMW, what's your background? Have you always been a car enthusiast? Did you own a Carrera track when you were little? For me, I have to confess I had a scale electric. So that's my background in terms of mobility. Well, I had uh, two fabulous products of uh, the great German company Märklin, uh, a slot race uh, device uh, and a railroad. So I had both of them, but uh, didn't pursue it as seriously as I might have wished. But no, I'm not truly a car guy. I have a background in economy and have been dealing with uh, as an interface between public expectations, governments and the corporate world all my life. Michael, maybe coming to you next, fantastic 28 years of experience at Siemens, um, and you've been involved in rail-based transportation for all that time as well. What about your background? Has the model railroad, for example, been something that you were really interested in going back to when you were a child? Well, I did own uh, toy trains, quite a few of them, but I also owned toy cars. And uh, if I think back, um, I have many good memories driving my car, especially on vacation, on holiday trips. Um, even though after university, uh, during university, I, I rode my bicycle mainly. And, uh, I always passed the cars waiting there in the traffic jam. So I went directly into, into the train industry after that. And so perhaps now if we start looking ahead at what comes next, and we're seeing a big shift at the moment around sustainable mobility, looking at single trip to seamless journey, combining multiple modes and connects and optimising them with trips of other users as well. If we go back to a year ago, I think if we looked to what a sustainable perspective might look like, it would have been things like car sharing, ride hailing, a move away from individual transport in cities and more around expansion of public transport. But today, one year on, things are looking different. You know, we're looking at public transport and it's being considered part of the solution and now part of a problem. So what do you think from, from that viewpoint for yourselves? Is that exaggerated or do you share that view? Perhaps over to Michael first on this one. Yeah, certainly I, I think that COVID has been a big breather to, to all of us in the sense of we, we slowed down our lives and everybody can see that the public transportation system is empty right now because of COVID. If you ask me looking forward... I think it'll come back very quickly. I think we're all just itching to go out again and meet our friends, travel around, have weekend trips, um, even going back to the office. Uh, we, are, we are itching to go back to a normal work life. And I, I see two huge uh, possibilities or opportunities uh, coming out of, out of this crisis. I think, number one, if we could go back to a life where we don't all rush to work, 
between seven and eight o'clock in the morning and everybody's in traffic jam speed in, a, in the railroads uh, or in on the streets, that would obviously be a huge lever to increase efficiency of our system. Just to bounce off a couple of numbers here, uh, most metro systems in the world have an average capacity loading of 20%. They, they are overfilled and overcrowded during rush hour and then they run in, empty for, for six or eight hours. If you could just bring it up to 40% average usage, evenly distributed over the day, you would have a massively comfortable ride and the system would all of a sudden not have to be um, subsidized anymore by 50% roughly in the world, but actually it would be generating profit. So, so mass transit would be completely different possibility for, for cities to expand uh, the offerings also. And the, the other big chance I just see is that, of course, and, and you mentioned that, Sally, there's a huge opportunity in optimizing the overall system um, to have integrated trips, to plan your trips on an, on an app, how this could massively contribute to making our uh, mobility in the, in the city much more of a nice experience, make the system more efficient, make it uh, much more cost efficient and, um, and overall improve the total uh, experience that you have there traveling from A to B in a city or, or outside. Absolutely, Michael. And just thinking about some of the things you said there, I love that point also, not just a smart technology aspect and you know, helping people make informed choices of when to travel, but also just that staggering of the day. And I think what we've seen with some of the changing in working practices over recent months, it's kind of showed the art of the possible about doing that. And I hope that will help as part of this solution as well. Um, and over to you, Thomas, what are you seeing in terms of how uh, transport can not only be you know, part of the problem that's been discussed recently, but actually part of the solution to make this better? Well, I mean, if we look at the corona impact, I share the view that uh, on the short term, obviously, we have been seeing a shift into uh, the private car as it is perceived as a much uh, safer place than uh, namely public transport in cities. But uh, in the mid and longer term, I would think that the bigger structural effect of corona will be the impact on the way we work and when we go to work and how we organize ourselves. And here I think there is uh, quite some potential for reducing uh, the burden on the transport system in general and both public transport, rail, uh, as much as the road. So uh, just an example where uh, we have many discussions with the authorities in Beijing, for example, who have been piloting a system where you can or where you actually have to reserve a slot uh, for the subway. So you only can travel at a defined point in time, uh, something that obviously uh, worked pretty well in connection to work patterns shifting anyway due to corona. And this is uh, one example which might even be considered for road transport. So what we see is that digitalization and uh, a better organization of traffic still offers a huge potential for the future, which could include, for example, smart options for pricing, for charging different rates uh, for the usage of public infrastructure at different times of the day, for different categories of vehicles, for different user groups. So with a lot of what is possible today, we can go way beyond what we have as uh, the status quo in managing cities very clearly from our perspective. We have been conducting together with the Karlsruhe University a study in Berlin, in San Francisco and in Beijing. And we asked two simple questions. Do you have to drive a car? Yes or no? And do you like to drive a car? Yes or no? And we questioned people who were actually driving a car in these inner cities. And the result is pretty striking because you have one third, and in all of those places, by the way, pretty equally, one third of people says, 
I neither enjoy driving nor would I absolutely have to. But I absolutely do not like uh, the options that I have uh, from public transport. Another third says, I need to drive because I do not have any appropriate alternative. And by the way, I also like it. So with instruments like simply reducing road space, like banning people from going into the city, you will drive the last uh, third that I mentioned absolutely angry and get into political conflict without helping the other third, which would rather like to use a different means of transport in their daily lives. And this is why we think a properly organized system where you are pricing different options for being around on the road could really produce a beneficial effect for both. You could offer a safer, a smoother, maybe also a faster ride uh, to those who really depend on it or who are ready to pay for it. While on the other hand, being able to invest more into public infrastructure, including, for example, charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. So one should really rethink the way not only the usage of public infrastructure is allocated, but also how it is financed. And what I think is that we don't have enough conceptual discussion around these possibilities and are rather focusing on what are the pros and cons of making a bikeway out of a road or of restricting maximum speeds or of shutting out certain vehicle groups. And by the way, one of the biggest drivers of congestion in inner cities is goods transport, uh, namely, for example, parcel delivery, which is closely connected uh, to digital business models, by the way. So it is not just uh, the private car that takes somebody to their work or to shopping, which is causing the issues, but it's far more complex than that. I think it's giving people those really good quality choice options that aligns to where they are is absolutely critical as well. Michael, from your point of view, what's your thoughts here about sustainability, city centres and giving those options? Well, look, um, urbanisation is still accelerating. Um, we expect 2.5 billion more people to move into the cities until 2050. That's uh, 30 years. For the last 2.5 billion to move into the cities, it took 50 years. So if we think the big urbanisation um, has happened already, we, we are wrong. And it's, it's not only happening in Asia or Latin America, it's also happening in Europe. I mean, London is growing year by year. Munich is growing. Uh, Stockholm is growing. So at the end of the day, we are running out of space. And I do think it's, it's a question of how do we want to use space? And all the concepts I see, you need a backbone to provide affordable transportation to everyone. And um, I think it's highly a, a discussion that society has to lead. If you look at real estate pricing in, in big cities, I mean, the real estate price is double or triple because that's where people want to live. So I think at the end, it's a discussion of how we want to live in the cities. And um, our vision is, of course, to have a backbone um, rail and, and have many options to get to and from rail. And certainly the car plays a role. And, and when, we, when we talk about sustainability, I think it's crystal clear that all modes of transportation have to become green in the next uh, years very quickly. 25% of the global emissions are from, from transportation and, and they have to contribute. When it comes to sustainability from, from railroad, of course, 90% of the, the transport uh, that is happening today on railroads is on, underneath an overhead line, meaning it's electrified. So it can be very easily switched to CO2-free transport by just 
receiving or feeding into the system uh, clean clean electricity. So from that point of view, I think um, without trains and without such a system, it's it's impossible to to achieve any sustainable transportation under the time pressure that we are. Right. I mean, if you look at Paris. 1.5 degrees of heating uh, of, of global warming to be achieved by going to zero emissions in 2040 and go by to 50% emission in 2030. And by the way, in the last two years, we have polluted just without any change. So it's not going linearly down. And if, if you continue doing this for another five years, we've reached already the accumulated value, meaning then in five years, we have to go to zero and we have to shut off all, all combustion engines, meaning uh, time is really of the essence. And... Um, if we want to, want to achieve the targets from, from that point of view, um, we have to switch to whatever is possible as clean transportation, basically, yesterday. So thinking again about the COVID impact, what about, about personal health and safety and around security? So some of the aspects we've mentioned here around making people feel safe going back on public transport. Um, but equally, if we're bringing different technologies together, we've got that smart tech integration, ensuring people feel about secure about their data, for example. Have you got any thoughts on that? Maybe going to Thomas first. Well, I think, first of all, data is important in order to really understand what is actually happening. Uh, if you take, for example, ride-hailing, which was the big buzzword a few years ago, where everybody said, well, hailing is the alternative to the private car, and with uh, supporting ride-hailers, you will bring down private vehicle usage. There is actually no data supporting this. To the contrary, all the data, namely from California, shows that uh, the growth in ride-hailing is the minus of public transport. Because of perceived advantages in terms of safety, cleanliness, reliability. And the private car usage in places like Los Angeles or San Francisco or others was not affected by ride-hailing, bus usage was. Uh, if you look at Copenhagen, the world capital of bicycle motorways, if you like, uh, the assumption was this would reduce car usage. It didn't happen it reduced bus usage. So by making cycling attractive, you do not necessarily get people out of their private cars. And some of the notions, some of the policy ideas behind this are simply too simplistic. So that's why we think that using data the right way, you can do things much better. Like so many things, I think, coming out of the pandemic, it's all about coming together and bringing these different voices, different experience and solutions and working together to, to come up with the answers. I think now let's look at another area and one I know is getting a lot of attention at the moment. So if you look at the aspects around hydrogen versus battery vehicles, but also looking at different sustainable solutions across rail, but also individual transport as well. So I'd love to kind of drill down into this a bit more detail and look from your perspective, what do you see as the role of hydrogen in the future? And maybe going to Thomas first on this. Well, as you know, we have a long history of seeing the potential of hydrogen as it has a high energy density, it offers the possibility to have long distance trips and relatively easy, fast fueling options. On the other hand, more so even than battery electric driving, to bring this about depends on the availability of public infrastructure. And technically speaking, the drivetrain is the same. It's an electric engine that drives the car. But the difference is obviously uh, the storage system and, in addition, the fuel cell that will convert uh, hydrogen into electric propulsion. So one of the most relevant issues for Europe in the next year will be uh, whether we are going to have a clear political decision to go 
for a hydrogen infrastructure that will really create customer confidence in this being a day-to-day -day option. We see this not as, let's say, a solution for somebody who wants to drive short distances in and out the city. Uh, here, I think, with a view to the efficiency of the drivetrain, the battery electric uh, drive mode is clearly superior. So cars like our electric mini uh, will get you the mile driven with the least uh, energy consumed. But namely in places uh, where infrastructure for charging electrically may be insufficient and or for, for very heavy cars which travel long distances, hydrogen could be an option. But clearly the choices here are to be made by namely the European legislator in the coming years. So maybe, Michael, coming to you for a second here, looking at this from a rail perspective, what's your take on how hydrogen or battery-powered locomotives could be a better alternative to electrification of rail lines? What's your thoughts on that? The answer is a simple no. They will never be a better alternative to electrification of rail lines. And on trains, we have it for 90% of the transport done today um, already available. The question remains for the last 10% for the regional trains where it's not cost efficient to put a catenary line up, do you use battery and hydrogen or hydrogen? Battery is, as of today, more efficient, but of course the capacity is uh, smaller. So we can run battery trains and we have them in our portfolio. You can buy them today. You can run them for distances of 50, 70 kilometers and then you recharge them. Recharging is very easy on trains because usually in, in one of these stations you do have an overhead line. Um, uh, and if you don't have it, you just uh, you just put it up there um, as, a, as a charging station. It's part of the infrastructure standard of railroads, of course. And um, th this is a good system. Um, but if you want to cover many more kilometers um, and uh, you want to have more power, then you go to hydrogen. Um, we are building a train which we call second generation, which, by the way, that train also has a battery in it because on short-term acceleration, the hydrogen generator cannot provide the power we would need in the train. So we continuously run the hydrogen generator at optimum performance point and we charge the battery so that when we leave the station, we can quickly accelerate and we can go with the flow of, of any other trains. So that is available, but currently it's mainly about... Uh, Will the energy, the changes in the energy systems in, in Europe, will they be able to provide cheap hydrogen and most importantly, cleanly produced hydrogen? I mean, we would have to produce them maybe with the wind power um, at nighttime or things like that. But if you just produce them by connecting them to the power grid, which runs then on a coal uh, power plant, then you really have not won very much. You probably have a very low efficiency uh, built on top of everything. So we've talked about the infrastructure factors. We've talked about some things around, around the governance of this as well, but also around cleaner energy. One, one thing that did bring to mind is that in a different market, so Asian manufacturers, for example, there seems to be more of a focus on hydrogen cars as one example there. So I wondered, maybe Thomas, on that one, what are you seeing of the differences in approach in that region um, compared to Amir? Well, clearly, as you rightly uh, allude to, the Japanese government has uh, a much stronger focus on hydrogen as an energy transportation and storage means than the European Union or Germany, for example, have. 
In the case of Japan, I think this does not only apply to the transport sector, but clearly also goes beyond that into, a, so for example, energy supply for industry, housing, etc. So this is why manufacturers like our partner Toyota, with whom we are working on the hydrogen field, in their home market has a different environment compared to ours. I would agree with Michael on the point that what is now the most urgent topic, and very clearly from our perspective, this is the build-up of electric charging infrastructure in the European Union. And uh, I also agree that uh, we must not delay this. Just to put that into perspective, today, 75% of all public electric chargers for cars in Europe are located in just four countries the UK, Germany, France, and the Netherlands. And the entire rest of Europe has a quarter of those. Almost 70% of BMW's EV sales took place in exactly these four frontrunner markets. So we need in Europe to overcome what today is a north to south and a west to east divide in terms of charging possibilities for EVs if we want to sustain the growth of that option. Because very clearly, the 75% increase we have been seeing last year compared to 2019 obviously is also the result of huge incentives, like in many other markets. These are budget heavy, and it is unlikely that this will go on forever. So what we need to achieve are framework conditions where people really have full confidence in the ability to use their technology where they live and not have this as a permanent question mark in people's heads. And therefore, we need a concerted policy addressing the supply side of cars, which is about us further increasing our offering. And on the other hand, also addressing the demand side by creating favorable fiscal conditions and uh, namely building up infrastructure. I couldn't agree more there. Any final thoughts on this from your perspective, Michael? I think right now it's uh, we're not able to predict the future, which one of these two technologies will make the race for us. As a supplier, it's important to, to play in both fields right now. Obviously, hydrogen would be a great alternative if it could be produced uh, cheaply. Currently, battery is the better technology and it's much closer to, to real applications where you can just replace diesel trains with, with battery trains. So both technologies will be used by us and I think the market and uh, also some regulations will decide uh, which one makes the race. And I think just reflecting on everything we've talked about so far, one area that brings this all together in many ways is design. I think sometimes when we talk about sustainability, there can be too much focus on, as one example, like the recycling aspect of things. So sustainability has to be embedded by design. So maybe going to Thomas first, what do you, potential do you see around sustainability in this design process? And how could that affect maybe the evolution of new business models as well? Well, for us, this is uh, the big thing ahead of us. Just to give you some numbers, if you take an average conventional vehicle, you have a CO2 footprint in the supply chain of about 10 tons of CO2. So this is four to five years of an average German's CO2 emissions on the road. Then you have one to two tons, which happen in the actual production. And then you have 40 tons that are emitted on the road when burning fuel. This ratio changes completely with an electric vehicle. So with a European CO2 mix in the electricity net grid, uh, you can bring the 40 tons 
significantly down to, let's say, 10. But if you go with pure renewables, you obviously get close to zero. The footprint of production will not change. But what really goes up is the footprint of the supply chain. So an EV, in the absence of measures you take against that, will have 20 tons of CO2 in its parts before we even start assembling them. And the main reason for that is the huge energy intensity of the production of batteries. And this is the reason why we have concluded with all our battery cell suppliers agreements whereby they will exclusively supply us uh, with products that are made with renewable energy. We are also engaging our energy-intense suppliers from the aluminum, the steel, or the plastics industry in order to have the same kind of commitment to bring down the CO2 footprint. And BMW has uh, the clear commitment uh, until 2030 to bring down the supply chain footprint to eight tons. So having a net reduction, despite of the headwinds uh, of these highly energy-intense components. So that is obviously a challenge which we cannot deliver on in isolation. We need the collaboration with our supply chain partners. Uh, we need a conducive framework, for example, predictable CO2 prices in order to enable us to bring down significantly the absolute, the complete CO2 footprint uh, of our products because very clearly we want and we will significantly grow the share of our EVs in Europe to about 50% in 2030 at least. Yeah, I would say the big advantage of a car is obviously the comfort, comfort of the individual ride. The two huge advantages of the train are number one, capacity and, and space usage in the city and sustainability. If you talk about sustainability, I think uh, Thomas mentioned it. Obviously, we don't need batteries. I mean, these systems are electrified, so the biggest CO2 switching cost is, is eliminated. If you think about the production and the um, manufacturing chain of a train, um, per occupied seat roughly in a, in a regional train, you have 500 kilograms, half a ton of material. So that's usually also less than in a, in a car with, with all the CO2 that is consumed by producing these 500 kilograms of material of, 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 of train, of seat, or whatever goes, goes in there. But the biggest difference, of course, is that the train um, has almost 30 times the life expectancy of a car in terms of kilometers driven. And the question is, how can we make it more attractive and, and pull people into the systems uh, to use it, to, the, to then have the space in the streets to, yeah, to use it as we want to? Absolutely. And I think that brings us on to a really nice external question that's come through as well. So an influencer question from Antonio Santos. Hi, Sally. We all recognize the importance of sustainable supply chains and the need for a longer vehicle lifetime. But uh, with that in mind, how can we manufacture vehicles uh, more sustainably? So maybe going over to Thomas for this one. Very clearly where we see the biggest potential for making the value chain more sustainable is on the one hand, as I mentioned, reducing the CO2 footprint of primary material reduction. And the other big lever is uh, recycling. So by law, uh, a vehicle has to be 95% uh, recyclable. But in practice, this means that steel that has been a car will presumably become a steel bar used uh, in construction. 
aluminum that has been a vehicle body will presumably become a beverage can. And if we want to come to more really closed loops, then we need to undertake a huge effort, which has advantages in terms of CO2. So secondary aluminum, for example, means 80% less CO2 than using virgin material, but it requires higher qualities. So only 2% of copper that are not sorted out of uh, metal scrap will make the material practically unusable uh, for many automotive purposes. So having no copper in, for example, steel and aluminum means we have to get wiring harnesses completely out of the car before the body is scrapped. That means less complex electronic architectures and less wiring in the vehicle. So closing loops means design for recycling from the outset. And we think that here we have uh, a huge effort ahead of us, again, together with many other players. And also the legislator will have a role. We clearly support the European Commission's proposal for a new battery directive, which includes uh, the tracking of the life of this component, uh, including ambitious uh, recycling rates. And this can only be the beginning, very clearly. Yeah, like I said, average trains run 200,000 kilometers per year, and that for 30 years. So that's, of course, a huge advantage. And average trains don't need batteries uh, because they have a catenary line. That's a huge advantage in CO2. When it comes to material, of course, all the arguments that we heard before are valid for, for us, too, and, and, and are very much uh, the same. Although I would think it's probably a little bit easier to disassemble a train at the end of a lifetime just because the amounts of copper in it, for instance, are so huge and the, the wires are usually much thicker than what's used in the automotive industry. So the recycling, I think, on a train is because just the, the quantities you have when you disassemble one train is, um, I believe, uh, easier and um, done uh, probably very, very thoroughly. I think it brings us on to one final key topic area, looking ahead to the future of mobility. And it's very much focused on the concept of mobility as a service um, and whether or not this is a core competence for today's mobility companies as they stand or a new business field that's really opening up to so-called new kids on the block. So if we drill into this a little bit more, um, perhaps going to you, Michael, first on this one, how are you seeing um, mobility as a service as a key factor for you in the future of sustainable mobility? I mean, it must be possible to plan a trip from A to Z and have one ticket for it and have a seamless experience when it, when it comes to that. Um, mobility of a service can and should be a part of that. Um, to give you an example, we are just we built actually software for these type of services. Um, in Siemens Mobility, we have several companies busy with that. One is Harkon, and uh, we just won a project for the whole country of Holland, where basically the national train operator, NS, is sharing its data with the city of Rotterdam, the uh, urban transportation system of Rotterdam, and also the city of Denmark, so three partners. And you can cross-buy tickets. Uh, each of these companies, like Rotterdam Metro, can have their own um, application on your cell phone so that you can look for a trip and, and everything, and you have your own sales outlet. They can keep the customers, but they can buy a trip, including all of these other tickets. And it's it's an open platform that anybody else can dock onto. It could be the scooter rental company, the car sharing company. They could also be integrating themselves and uh, be building their own app or, or buy, buy an app from us to, to integrate. And I think this is where mobility as a service really becomes powerful 
because it's convenient, because it could be resolving the main problem of public transport, which is the little gaps in the system. Um, I do think, just, just one thought to finish, I think the cell phone obviously is uh, the game changer there. The, the fact you can plan your trip on the walk basically is extremely important. And this really is a technology that, that can change the world for public transportation. Absolutely. I love the point you there made, uh, Michael, about the open platform. Um, and just coming back on a couple of things you said, Michael, as well, do you think the breakthrough moment here around mobility as a service is still yet to come? How far, you know, a tipping point might be the expression to use here, but where do you think we are on the trajectory here? Well, I think that uh, still there is individual solutions out there, but not a system overall that really makes the best out of each component of it. If we are designing Siemens Stadt and, and the, the old headquarters of Siemens here in Berlin um, that will be completely redesigned in an area where people live, where people work, where people spend spare time, then our vision of transportation is that you arrive in an, in an airplane and you already booked your complete ticket. So you, you, you jump in the train and there's a seat reserved for you in an area of the train that actually groups people that have the same final destination. So when they get out of the, uh, at the train station... You don't have the rendezvous problem anymore, how to find your next connection. You just walk straight from the from the platform across to the other side of the platform. And there's your minibus waiting that already groups all the people that eventually want to go to the exact same building. And, and all of this can really only work as an integrated system. Absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, and Thomas, from your perspective, how important is this for everything you're doing at BMW at the moment? Well, for us, obviously, connectivity is uh, extremely important. I mean, we have a long history of offering digital services to our customers. But as Michael also said, the issue of a more seamless intermodality also plays a huge role for us, not only for the car sharing operations, for example, that we co-own with uh, Daimler, but also with a view to organizing mobility for our customers. So if you would assume that you get with your car from the countryside, from where you may be living, uh, into the inner city, but leave it maybe not right into the very historic center of a place, but outside of that, then uh, being able to get around with scooters or with whichever other means of transport in the most seamless manner uh, will contribute a big deal to bringing congestion down. And one big factor, obviously, is parking. A big piece of uh, the traffic jams that we see in the cities today is about people looking for a parking space because they don't know where it could be. So pre-reserving uh, parking slots, uh, navigating you there, as simple as it may sound, is by far not yet the rule. Combining that with charging for EVs adds to the complexity of this but also makes uh, the case for a digital support even more compelling. So, and again, also this topic is about an open mindset, about collaboration between authorities, public transport authorities, technology and infrastructure companies like Siemens and car makers like us. So it's about really bringing together technical and conceptual competence and rethinking the mobility system that we got used to over the last 140 years. 
And do you think that integrating these different factors, different players into one platform will be overly complex? So how do you feel that traditional suppliers are equipped to deal with this versus newer entrants such as specialised companies or some of the startups that we're seeing in this area? Um, maybe, Michael, back to you on that one. Well, technically, that's absolutely no problem. We have done that. For instance, uh, in Dubai, we created an app where all modes of transportation are integrated. For SOB, the um, railroad, not the main railroad, but another mainline railroad in Switzerland, we have integrated many transport systems like the post bus, the, the trains, even the skiing lifts we have integrated in one ticketing application. The problem here usually is they're wanting to share data and wanting to cross-sell tickets because mainly in most countries, the big operators want to protect their own customer base and they don't want other entities to also sell tickets for them, so they want to protect their own sales channel. And I really think this is actually a question for the regulators. I think uh, the European government uh, should think about um, what changes need to be made to uh, to make that possible, that the tickets are sold across uh, cross different modes of transportation and uh, maybe data sharing for the usage of such applications should just be made uh, possible everywhere by law just to make the transportation systems more efficient. Excellent, Michael. Thank you. And Thomas, just any final points from you that you would like to bring out from a BMW perspective on anything more that can be done to really actualise this opportunity of mobility as a service? Well, I think it's, uh, uh, I just can underscore what has been said. It's about uh, data usage and it's about organising this in, in a way that is compatible with the kind of uh, expectations in terms of data privacy and data security which we have. And this is why we are, for example, a big uh, supporter of the uh, Gaia-X initiative uh, to have a European cloud space that can accommodate future needs while maintaining uh, our standards in terms of privacy, for example. So before I wrap up, I'd love just to ask one final question. So if you were to envisage the perfect mobility concept, in which city in the world would you prefer to live and why would that be? So maybe Thomas first. Yeah, in a much more digitally managed, but still uh, most beautiful Munich. I mean, <laughs> so we are patriots here and uh, would like to make this place uh, the European lighthouse of future mobility. <laughs> Oh, I have to say Berlin. If you say Munich, I have to say Berlin. I love my Berlin. <laughs> but um, no, I've been impressed traveling and, and seeing different cities. I have been uh, impressed with Singapore. They built up their metro system as a backbone. So basically to integrate the strength of the car into the overall system. And uh, the way I've seen uh, them thinking about it there was, was impressive to me. And, and if we have this in Munich or in Berlin, then I think it's a fruitless discussion which city is, is better to live. Excellent. I love the examples there. So that really does bring our time here to a close for our podcast discussion today. So thank you so much to Michael Peter and to Dr. Thomas Becker. I know great insights here to share with the audience. And we'll be back soon with another episode of Moving Beyond. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Sally. Thank you.